By the best estimates, the number of direct primary care practices in the USA has risen from the low hundreds to nearly 1,100 or so since about 2014. That's a staggering growth rate, and it's been increasing each year. Now, while the five-year growth rate of approximately 900% is really eye-catching, we want to look deeper into that number and figure out if this tiny movement continued to grow and how. So here's a little bit of background. Early on, circa mid 2000s or so, some enterprising physicians began to develop what we today understand as DPC or direct primary care. Growth was kind of a trickle. There were some different models such as concierge medicine or membership medicine that started to be thrown around until the Affordable Care Act was finally passed and then read and then understood and digested. So this first growth phase happened because of the consolidation in healthcare about 2013, about 2014. The authors of the ACA believe that consolidating physician care into large systems and networks was the answer to driving down costs and prices associated with care. In theory, they believe that creating economies of scale all around the country would benefit patients and drive down costs. Obviously, this didn't happen. As ACA author Dr. Coker, a special assistant to President Obama for healthcare and economic policy from 2009 to 2010, wrote in a July 31st, 2016 op-ed to the Wall Street Journal, quote, independent primary care doctors are able to change their care models in weeks and rapidly learn how to use data to drive savings and quality, end quote. What he meant here was that innovation doesn't happen in large consolidated systems. It's happening at the independent practice level where physicians and their team, boots on the ground, are able to adjust to the needs of their patients. This is something that is not a surprise to most doctors, and primary care doctors knew this a long time ago and began to take matters into their own hands. They began to explore cash or membership medicine. Like I said, going against the tide of the industry of consolidation, these doctors found DPC. As time progressed, more and more resources became available so the physicians looking at DPC models don't have to make the same mistakes as the pioneers before them. Private companies, such as Freedom HealthWorks, offer cheaper and faster ways of starting independent deep sea practices as many physicians can do it on their own. So as I mentioned earlier, there are only about 1,100 practices in this model, if that, maybe more, maybe less. Talking to other industry professionals, it seems like we're poised to break out and have our hockey stick inflection moment in terms of growth. Hockey stick meaning slow growth, kind of flatlining until you reach a certain point and then you're almost vertical, just like a hockey stick looks like. It's an incredibly exciting time for people who have been involved for years. Unfortunately, it's not all sunshine and butterflies. There are threats that exist. And if we're not careful, they can rip apart this move from the inside. And this is where we get into today's podcast, dealing with unifying themes behind direct primary care. Because the stakeholders of DPC, meaning patients, physicians, and ultimately companies, the people who are actually paying the bills, they don't need to march and lockstep together. But we do need to be aware of our strengths and weaknesses in order to continue pushing forward for real, impactful, positive change. That means not letting politics, popularity contests, or even territory squabbles stand in our way. Here with me today is an active voice and trusted resource in the direct care and the free market medical movement, Dr. Beth Haynes, to discuss ways to unite the different views and personalities and push forward together behind a model that we believe satisfies a lot of needs for patients, for doctors and employers out there. Direct care. From the Freedom HealthWorks Network, this 
is Healthcare Americana. Today's podcast is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks, a company on a mission to turn healthcare delivery on its head. It works to support all physicians who are interested in direct care, cutting out insurance companies from their practices, and to spread the word of this model to everyone, including employers. For more information on direct care, visit freedomhealthworks.com and by the great people at the Free Market Medical Association. They're connecting true buyers and sellers of healthcare, educating and motivating them to work together based upon mutually beneficial relationship, which is also built on three pillars, price, value, and equality. For more information, visit fmma.org. I'm your host, Christopher Habig, and this is Healthcare Americana. I'm now joined by Dr. Beth Haynes, an emergency medicine physician for 20 years who has spent the past 10 years in health research policy and education. Dr. Haynes, thanks for taking the time to come on the show and share your experiences with everyone. Sure. Glad to be part of this conversation. Now, throughout your involvement in various organizations, there's a litany of boards that you sit on to help in the health policy uh, area. What have you seen uh, from those organizations as you've been involved and specifically, how has the direct care movement been involved within those organizations? Oh, gosh. This, the first organization I got involved with was Doctor for Patient Care right after the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And we spent a lot of time going, um, talking to representatives uh, representatives, senators in, in D.C., and nobody had ever heard of the idea of membership medicine, which, you know, the language was very new at the time, but it was being called direct primary care, and everybody kept thinking, oh, you just mean concierge for the really rich people, right? And trying to explain that, and Lee Gross was just amazing at the ability to um, meet with Democrats and Republicans. It didn't matter. People saw immediately that this was a great way to offer affordable quality health care for people. And there was a lot of enthusiasm, but a lot, you know, people just didn't know what it was. And then with that, it's, it's gradually grown. Doctor patient care is started off as a C6 membership organization. It's now a C3 um, educational organization as a foundation. And it's continued to stay very, very involved with um, educating people about direct primary care. In fact, we just had their, uh, the annual conference, Nuts and Bolts Conference, down in Orlando. That's one of the, the key things that Doctor Patient Care Foundation has been involved with. So probably it's the largest that it is currently involved with, although they've been um, really uh, concerned about certificate of need and just the debacle of the top-down electronic medical records and its interference with the doctor-patient relationship, and also um, maintenance of certification. Mm-hmm. There was one other thing that they're involved with. I'll, it'll come to me later. Anyway, they, they took, a, took on a few things that's been involved with that. For many years, I was running the Benjamin Rush Institute, which worked with medical students, and trying to bring non-government solutions, private solutions, to the challenges that we face with healthcare to the medical students and get them thinking outside the box because most of the health policy instruction that they receive, which is very small to begin with, really is heavily tilted towards the government has to solve this problem. And direct primary care was definitely part of that and was the most enthusiastically received. Again, across political divide. It's just Mm -hmm. people can respond to this as this is a great way for people to benefit Period. So a lot of work in more of a free market sense, which again fits very in very well with the message of Freedom Health Works and with direct primary care in general is 
hey, why don't you leave it up to the people on the ground to actually fix a lot of the issues that plague our, our system here in our industries and not looking towards Washington for some type of magical one-size-fits-all legislative effort. And a lot of the efforts that you've been involved with are just breaking down the barriers that physicians like yourself see uh, that get in the way of caring for patients. I mean, is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you put something that's top down, like we like that was done with the electronic medical records, you really cross the innovation and the ability of physicians to adapt that system in a way that makes sense clinically, that serves what's going on at the point of care. I mean, it's pretty obvious to people now that the the way well intended in some respects, you know, they wanted to bring doctors into the um, 21st century and digital access and the efficiencies that that has provided to every other industry. But at the same time, they wanted to, to um, improve data collection and have, you know, for Medicare, it was also important to be able to get the right billing and facilitate that for the private insurance. And it became a huge data um, collection source and billing mechanism at the expense of really improving clinical efficiency. And because it was built into the law, it takes an act of Congress to change it, right? So there was, even though we were starting to see physicians create their own electronic medical records, all of that was crushed. All of that innovation was just thrown out the window because it was, you know, you could have this big carrot of, of uh, extra pay um, from the government if you adopted and then there was penalties if you didn't adopt the, their specific um, design for the electronic medical records. If you take that experience and then you put that same approach into innovation in healthcare delivery, you're going to find that same crushing effect on all these innovations and things that are just starting to, to beginning to get started and really take off like direct primary care or mm-hmm. cash payment for um, outpatient surgeries. Um, even cash fee-for-service um, in the specialties because physicians that are taught, you know, we're, we're highly educated, but the actual service that we're offering could potentially be much lower except when you add all these middlemen like all the billing and the um, insurance, that kind of stuff actually artificially inflates the cost to the patient. Right, so right. We want that innovation, and that's what the concern is. That's why we want to leave. I think that there's the powerful argument, let's not have a top-down implementation or design of things. Yeah, and, and you look at it from a supply and demand uh, aspect too, where you know, I, I don't care what people say, but the prices that you charge are able to charge in downtown Manhattan in a physician practice in Times Square is going to be a lot different than what you charge in a farm community in the middle of Kansas. It's just it's just a fact of life. It's just economics 101. So again, that top-down approach just doesn't fit within the healthcare industry um, really at all. The pricing doesn't fit anywhere, right? right. The, you know, price setting, right. but it's also the design. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they, the government didn't price set and say, you can, you know, this is what the EMR has to cost, but they put so many requirements in it that inflate the cost and design elements that it's not even serving things. I don't want to see that in delivery of healthcare. 
Right, exactly. But a lot of those, uh, the meaningful use in those quote unquote with kind of air quotes, uh, the, the incentives uh, to be able to code, you know, it just, that drives actions. Anybody who's ever studied behavior health, I mean, incentives drive a lot of what people's actions are, especially their motivation. So going back to breaking down the barriers and this whole theme that you've been talking about so far of not impacting delivery of healthcare. Um, you mentioned your work with the Benjamin Rush Institute and working with medical students, and you said this has a wide appeal, this type of direct care model, whether it be membership or whether it just be cash transparent prices, has a wide appeal. Why is that, in your, your opinion? Why does this type of a model appeal to so many doctors from medical school all the way up to physicians who might be nearing retirement age? I think there's nostalgia for the days of the family doc that has time to really get to know their patients. There's continuity of care throughout the family, even with internists or, or pediatricians, you know, to have to take care of all the kids in, in the family, you know, not just spotty. There's nostalgia amongst the doctors that are older wanting that model to return and not seeing patients jerked away from their practice because the employer-sponsored health insurance plan has changed or for whatever reason, right? So I think people want the time with their patients. That's a huge part of why people go into medicine in the first place is wanting to interact with people. To me, medicine is like the absolute pinnacle best of science and working with people. It just, it just brings that all together. And that art, it's been lost. Well, it's been challenged. I don't know that it's been lost. That's, that's too dramatic, but it certainly has been eroded into the doctor-patient relationship with just now you hear that for every minute a doctor spends with the patients, there's three to, I've heard as high as seven minutes worth of just desktop medicine, which is the new term for paperwork. I like that, desktop medicine. Wow, that's a new one. Yeah. I don't think I've heard that one yet, but. The whole push is not, is to not be um, paper, but electronic based. So you can't talk right. about paperwork anymore. So they see that. They see that the relationship is really preserved. The, the pace of the practice of medicine, the control over your hours, it still uh, allows physicians to get very reasonable amount of earnings. Mm -hmm. And it just, I think that's what excites them. You know, your, your, your own boss is very exciting. And I think that there's a big, been a big push towards people just assuming they're going to work, go work for a large uh, physician, multi-specialty organization, or be paid, you know, uh, an employee of a hospital. And here's an alternative. So there's still some remnants of that that's available. We actually assisted in a research project that was put together by a PA student um, that they did a survey before and after hearing about direct primary care about the interest of medical students in being a primary care physician. And it significantly impacted students' mm -hmm. interest in primary care. And I think seeing, the, seeing physicians who are happy, love what they're doing, you know, I think all of that plays into the response that we see with medical students about this model. Yeah, that's great. And, and I'd be interested to take a look at those, those survey results because that's something that's real and actionable. You can show that to people and say, hey, look, people want to go into primary care, but 
you know, they might be hearing in medical schools that, hey, you're, you're too smart to be a primary care doctor. Why aren't you going to be go, go be a specialist? So there's a big stigma against out there about being a primary care physician. Absolutely. And it's old. I was told that. Even though I ended up doing emergency medicine, there were no emergency medicine residencies at the time. And I really wanted to be a family doc. And all my preceptors were saying, oh, you're much too smart to do that. You should do something else. And to find out that even in this day where there's all this lip service given to how much we need primary care, that in these academic centers, this is still the message that's being sent to the student. It's telling. It's very Mm -hmm. telling. Yeah, it is a shame. And you mentioned a couple of things and and themes that I love when they come out that medicine is really an art form. You said it was, it was uh, at the intersection of science and humanity. And to me, that is pretty much defined. That's a great definition for a, a form of art. And then you mentioned how, you know, we say that medicine's not really a career, it's more of a calling. And when you're able to put a delivery model in front of somebody, and it changes their opinion about it, you know, specifically within your survey or um, within direct care, enticing more people to go into primary care. This seems like really like a no-brainer. And, and you kind of scratch your head and say, okay, if there's 1,100 direct care DPC practices in the U.S. right now, it's, it's growing like crazy, but there's still not enough practices out there to really make as big of an impact in the industry as we'd like it to. What are some of the issues you see to this model being more widely adopted? Oh, I think the Affordable Care Act is, is a huge um, disincentive for patients to be involved with this until they understand. Because, so we're, we're reaching some physicians and they're fed up enough with the sort of treadmill practice of, of medicine that is sort of dominating things. I mean, that's, I think, a big yeah, the reality course of, of all the burnout and and just frustration um, that you hear physicians talk about. But um, so patients aren't aware of it because the Affordable Care Act said in your insurance or what they're, you know, so it's not even insurance, right? It's a coverage plan. Mm -hmm. And it has to do too many tasks that really insurance was never intended, is not mathematically capable of of doing both uh, high-risk catastrophic care and these predictable, um, low-cost, point-of-service, primary care type of, of things. It's not, it just mathematically, if you understand insurance and risk management, it's not a risk. Primary care is not a risk. So the, the Affordable Care Act required that these plans, these health plans, cover something. So people, in order to be involved with a direct primary care, end up paying twice. And there's laws that um, prevent people from using their um, health savings account in order to pay for the membership fee of direct primary care. So again, it's, there's a tax disincentive for people to be able to, to really not have to pay more. It doesn't make, you know, there's economic um, incentives are, are tougher. So I think that's a big barrier. And I think just it's still new enough. Physicians coming out of school are coming out of school with a big debt. There's no instruction in medical school how to manage all of that debt, maybe minimize it. I'm not sure all of the of what goes into it. Some of it's the tuition, but some of it 
I'm not sure. There may be some more to it than just the tuition, what causes it. I mean, I came out of medical mm -hmm. school $20,000 in debt. That was the sum total of my tuition. Now, my same school, instead of being $5,000 a year, is now $30,000 a year. But that still is way lower than the half a million or a quarter million dollar um, debt that people are coming out of school with. So mm -hmm. there's some education that needs to be done of how to manage um, money while they're in school so that they don't come into so much debt and then how to manage their funds after they get out of school. So yes, you actually can start up your own business at the same time you're paying back your loans. This is really feasible if you do it intelligently with the education. You don't have to just go and sign a 10-year contract or some long-term contract as with an, an act as an employee. Those are some of the barriers. The, both the patient awareness and, and the um, negative tax um, incentives for them and then the student awareness about just the financial realities of being your own boss and starting your own business. Right. It doesn't seem like a lot of the medical schools or residency programs are really pushing independent medicine or independent practice anymore. And it's kind of like, well, once you're a physician, once your residency uh, is over, you get a bunch of job offers from a bunch of different hospital systems and nobody that you ever talk to even thinks about going independent anymore. Well, part of that is because in order to go independent, you have to actually be pro-business. <laughs> and amazingly, academic medicine is not pro-business. And the overall message is that medicine is more like being a civil servant than being a, an independent professional. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And part of it is, is just this antipathy towards the idea of profit you know, seeing it as an evil something, profit is evil, rather than just, you know, it's what it costs you to offer the service minus, you know, the value that it is to the people that you offer it to. You know, it's a math right. equation. And profit can um, be a positive incentive for those people who are working towards efficiency and for the people who are corrupt and don't have a good moral compass, then yeah, it can be a bad incentive. But it in and of itself is neutral. So, so on that vein and, and taking that, because it sounds like there's a shift of mindset and I, I'm going to attach that to kind of a political motivation here. And you mentioned the ACA before, but is something like direct care or direct primary care, is this something, is this a care model that can rise above the political fray? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the more that um, employers understand self-funding and you know some of the stuff that's coming out what Dave Chase is doing through in the health Rosetta and the ability to instruct um, smaller and smaller employers or when I say smaller employers but employers with fewer employees about the financial advantage of self-funding and then Really, they, they are liberated, even under the ACA, to be able to create a true catastrophic health insurance program and pair that with stop loss, and you've got something that's affordable to cover the big items for these, these employers, and pair that with a direct primary care model, which is you know, really affordable for people. 
what's not to like, you know? <laughs> what's yeah. not to like? It doesn't matter which way you vote if you're able to get better care from a physician, if that physician's able to price locally, you know, they can charge uh, according to their community and become a staple in their community again. It's hard to see. I mean, this model works for urban areas. It works for rural areas. It works for suburban areas. I mean, I have a hard time understanding which side of the aisle this type of delivery model would anger. It's an interesting question. There's this issue that's very big for the people who lean towards government solutions to make everything equal. And so that if there's inequality in the system, that rubs them the wrong way. And and the problem is, if you try to legislate equality, it just seeps through the seams. I mean, you can look at Canada, you can look at the UK, there even these heavily government operated healthcare systems, there's tremendous inequality. You, mm-hmm. You're just not going to get rid of that inequality. So I think it's a false goal, but I think that's something that drives them. And it's, it's I understand that wanting, not wanting people to fall through the cracks, right? And I think even with within the direct primary care model, there's a way that we can adapt that to cover the people who aren't employed, who are in employers with employers that are small enough that can't afford to give them, you know, so you could do something where the state is providing the um, catastrophic care and giving, setting up as a little bit along the lines of the healthy Indiana plan. Um, But you would give people a, a funded, a state taxpayer-funded um, equivalent of a healthcare savings account. And then those people in that system are not second-class citizens. They don't go there with a Medicaid card that pays pennies on the dollar to the physician. You know, it's like grocery stores don't turn away food stamps because that food stamp is the same as a dollar. You know, people can decide what, how they're going to spend their food stamps within limits. You know, they can't spend it on alcohol. But you could do the same kind of thing. Give the, these people with lower incomes or no incomes the power over their own purchasing decisions and make it equivalent. Then, you know, you're, you're just elevating the experience that they have. And I think the DPC model would be perfect for something like that. Especially with the, in regards to equality, I mean, I don't know what is more equal than if a physician wants to start up for a very low membership fee, no matter who walks through that door, the membership fee could be $25 a month. And that's the equality and access right there. And sure, if somebody is absolutely destitute and they say, look, I don't have two pennies to rub together, you can offer scholarships. You're outside of the bounds of these contracts that bind you or you've opted out of Medicare. So no one's going to come at you for charging less than what Medicare uh, is able to reimburse. So to me, within healthcare, a direct care relationship with your physician is the most equal type of relationship that you can have for somebody providing expert healthcare services. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I think so. And, and for physicians now that are not working at a federally qualified um, facility, for many of them, accepting Medicaid patients is at a financial loss to them. What kind of incentive is that? And there is a way to set it up so that 
financially, it's the same. Their experience with that patient, whether the patient is having a, you know, a self-funded HSA equivalent and coming in there and paying the, the membership fee, it's the same exp- financial experience for the physician, and it's a vastly improved experience for the Medicaid patient. I think it really rips down the barriers that physicians have to accepting Medicaid patients, many of whom are sicker and require a lot more time. They have fewer social supports, and so they're, they're actually more work for, for many physicians. But a DPC model would allow physicians to be able to have that guaranteed income and still be able to put the time into assisting those people. So anyway, I think it should work. And if to the extent that we could have people who are looking for a government solution to, to look at this proof of concept, there's some really cool DPC practices that are set up as nonprofits and they charge their paying um, members a bit more than what actually would need to be. But that, those, that excess contribution ends up going to pay for um, people like undocumented immigrants, which the ACA doesn't cover at all anyway. You know, it's those kind of creative solutions. And all medical care is local anyway. You know, I think this whole thing about being able to buy insurance across state lines, it's tough because medical care is local. Mm-hmm. That's only a small part of the problem. And the more the community is working to solve those those problems locally, I think we're going to find more creative solutions that work for every work for everybody. You know, it's got to work for everybody to be sustainable and and go forward. So we've established that DPC is something that is a bipartisan delivery model. It's something that appeals to doctors of all backgrounds, all ages. Um, it is something that all types of patients can benefit from. So again, you know, kind of go back to that question I asked earlier is what is holding this back? And, and recently it seems to me, and, and I know you have opinions on this, that even within the small, relatively tight-knit direct care community, there seems to be some kind of splintering factions and some lines that, that some certain organizations are drawing in the sand and bickering over very small differences to me, that is something that we have to keep our eye on because that could be very crippling to a small movement like this because like we've been talking about for the past 20 minutes, like this is something that can, has, has mass broad appeal. The education's not there yet, but why is it that some people within this direct care movement are kind of going back to their corner and saying, mm, we're going to go do it this way because your way of doing it over there, uh, we just don't agree with that. So we're not going to get behind you and support you. Why is that happening? Well, because they're people. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I look back at um, Docs for Patient Care and how we started and the growing pains that we went through. And there just, it was so fabulous at the Orlando meeting to look up and see on stage throughout the day people who were involved with Docs care at the very beginning. And then because of some of those same disagreements about how do we best go about um, solving the problems that we agree exist, lost track of each other for a while and had to, you know, it was like they had to go their own path. And doctors, people talk about working with doctors is like herding cats. I mean, it's our strength and our weakness that we 
have strong opinions, we're willing to, to accept responsibility for making decisions, and we don't want to be told what to do. You know, that's really in the culture of at least my generation and several de- generations following. And so I think the DPC movement is seeing some of those same growth pains where they have a shared vision of what they want to create and some very different ideas about how to get there. And as long as that is done with respect for what other people are doing, Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely fine. It was actually Jane Orient of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons who once said to me something about, yeah, we need all sorts of small efforts in many different places because that's what it's all about. That's how we come up with better solutions. And she never was threatened by the Benjamin Rush Institute or doctor patient care, even though we have similar, you know, a lot of shared goals. She mm-hmm. thought it was great. We need, we need many, many lights in the, in the wilderness. And I think that's some of what's going on. And I just invite everybody to do it with respect for each other and realizing that there are many different paths to build this movement and we're not all going to agree on strategy all the time. That's okay. That's the whole idea of the anti-fragility where you have many different contributions and things going on so that when one falls apart, there's all the other ones that can pick up and continue to move the ball forward. And at this point, it's really hard to know which is which is the right way. It's part, it's part of the discovery process that markets involve, you know, where some businesses fail because they didn't quite get it right. And we need lots of businesses. So we're not all depending on one monolith, either whether it's the government or whether it's any one DPC organization. Right. And I, and I totally agree with that. And, you know, at times, and I mentioned this to you before, it, at times it feels like the direct care movement, and I use the word is rudderless. Like it's, it's where everybody's lo- out there looking, searching on their own. A lot of people are making the same mistakes. And then you responded, well, Chris, I'm not sure that's a bad thing. And so <laughs> that made me think, you know what, this might be a good thing. Like you said, it's, it's not a fragile movement. It feels like there is actual grassroots support. There's sticking power. And if one idea or one model fails, people are working closer together now more than ever. They might disagree on personal politics or I should do this versus you should do this. But it seems like people are communicating better across this industry, even though there are more DPC practices um, than ever before. One last question I wanted to to ask you is, and and this isn't um, something that I want to kind of stereotype or anything with, but businesses in general have done their part, more of the nonprofit type of hospital systems to get this healthcare industry to the point where it is right now and what we kind of see as a breaking point type of a thing. But there seems to be a lot of distrust within DPC physicians and DPC practices that, oh, these businesses are just here to help put me back into the hospital system. At what points do DPC physicians need to realize that there are good and bad players out there in the business world? And that without them as either the patient side or on the partnership support side, at what point do practices need to work a little bit more closely together and trust the right type of players in order for their practices and for the movement to grow? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, or do they need businesses? Can this can be can this be a one hundred business? I'm not, I'm not sure what you mean when I think about things like hospitals and insurance companies. And again, it's not it's not a simple thing. They're having to function. Pharmaceutical companies, all these, are having to function inside some pretty tight constraints and government-imposed incentives, whether it's the insurance companies and the minimum loss ratio, which is basically saying you're only allowed 15% profit, that's it, and which is really atypical in the insurance world. And, and there's some really bad people out there. So it's, it's understanding what are the constraints that these businesses are under and then having an open mind out there to judge these the the players on their own character you know whether whether it's a different dpc organization um whether it's a business and um really be able to look at at the broader environment within which everybody's operating you know and and some people do it with integrity and some people don't and it and just because you're in a specific business doesn't mean that you aren't doing it with integrity, but you have incredible constraints placed on you. Mm -hmm. So it may basically do your homework. If you're a physician looking to partner with a type of organization, make sure they have the right type of values, which I think that's, that's just good advice in general when you're starting your own type of independent business or independent practice in general is get people that you think you can trust and that uh, are going to have your best interests in mind and move forward together. Yeah, I think so. And well, I mean, and it's, it's a mutual best interest, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, let's not, I don't think business is or needs to be altruistic in saying I'm only thinking about the other person. It's to be really transparent about why this interaction is mutually beneficial. And that's, that's part of what I think people who are anti-business in general really forget that People with integrity who come together for a business thing, it's, it, it only works if it's mutually beneficial. And then if it's not mutually beneficial, don't make it personal. You know, step away from it and say, this isn't working for me. That doesn't mean you're evil and bad and horrible or whatever. It's just, this is not a mutually beneficial relationship. Right, right. Well, we've covered the fact that DPC, uh, it, it's attractive to a wider range of people We've talked about how DPC and, and businesses within this industry can align their incentives, align their, uh, uh, their support offerings together to move it forward. So looking at your crystal ball, how do you see this nationwide movement of basically free market healthcare options? How do you see this moving forward from here? Oh, gosh. You know, I mean, I can't predict the politics of it. I think it's such a fabulous proof of concept that I want to see more people understand what it is and what it isn't, right? So there's, DPC can really manage a certain population and um, the DPC people, I think, need to be careful not to badmouth fee-for-service, mm-hmm. cash fee-for-service or anything, you know, because there's, there's a fabulous place for fee-for-service and, and everything else in the whole market system is fee-for-service and it's great, you know, uh, it's fee-for-service at the grocery store and 
with a lawyer and, you know, all sorts of things. So professionals, whatever. And I'm just really hopeful. And the more people can understand this as one piece of the puzzle, and it's a proof of concept that giving people both providers of care, the clinicians, and the patients the choice to decide what works best for them is the way that we're going to continue to come up with creative solutions to what's a really huge, complicated problem of expensive care that is not meeting the full spectrum of needs for patients, which includes, you know, not wiping out their bank account and also giving them the emotional support and connection that both doctors and patients need. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Haynes, thanks for joining us today, telling stories like this and getting your feedback and getting your take on what really drives direct care forward and what it's going to take to continue unifying doctors, patients, and uh, employers uh, to get behind this effort. I mean, it's just so important. So thank you for being a pioneer and a trailblazer for others to follow. And thanks for being an incredible example. Well, thank you. I, you know, it's a practical thing to do. It's a great idea, but a lot of people need to see how practical it is as well. And you're, and you and your company are doing all that. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Healthcare Americana. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podchaser, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your friends and colleagues to download and listen to all Healthcare Americana shows at healthcareamericana.com. This episode was produced by iPodcast Pro. Capture your story, iPodcastPro.com.